Glory to God in the highest heavens, and on earth peace to those who receive his love, his love. Hello everybody. And welcome back to another episode of the Wayward Podcast, where we hope to learn to live life upon the way of God's Word. So, we have finally, finally reached that pivotal moment in the Advent story where we experience the birth of Jesus. It is a climactic event for, well, it's the climactic event of this story. It's also the climactic event of the Advent season. And since we are coming up on Christmas in just a few days, uh, we're going to be focusing on this episode uh, right now. We're focusing on, on, on that event of the birth of Jesus today. And um, I really hope that this kind of helps Shape your heart, prepare your heart, prepare your mind for living your life upon the way of God's Word in this Christmas season, this season of hope, this season of God's glorious light being inserted into what is often a dark and hopeless world. Um... This story begins in Luke chapter 2. And one of the things that has jumped out to me as I've studied this passage uh, this time around is the presence of three different classes or groups of people. And I believe that these three classes or groups may help provide us with a framework for discerning the message that is being conveyed here in Jesus's birth story. So that that framework or that structure is going to be the lens through which we enter into today's story. And our text begins in Luke chapter 2. I welcome you to uh, follow along with me in your Bibles if you're able, if you got them. Uh, we are starting in verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. In those days... A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their towns, their own towns, to be registered. So, in the previous episodes that we've looked at and, you know, kind of looking through Luke chapter 1, um... A lot of the stories have kind of focused on the more intimate details of um, the local elements of the story. Like, uh, the story started with Zachariah and then focused on Elizabeth and then Mary. And they kind of went back to all of them in the hill country and everything. So everything is zoomed in. Everything is local. Everything is intimately focused. But now... Luke's narrative zooms out and shows us the larger global reality surrounding all of our local elements. And what Luke reveals to us is a certain class of people or group, a class 
of power. A lordly class that rules over all other classes. And it is represented here by none other than the emperor of Rome himself, who at this time is Caesar Augustus. And to be clear, Augustus was not just another Caesar on the list of Roman emperors. Augustus started the list. He was, at his time, he was pretty much the list. And Augustus was, if you remember, um, he was the nephew, great nephew, I think, of uh, Julius Caesar. And Julius Caesar made him his heir because he had no uh, children of his own. And Julius Caesar was technically never an emperor. He was just one of Rome's temporarily elected dictators who aspired to much greater things. And he marched his army into Rome, and he ordered the Senate to make him dictator for life. And his reign lasted only one year when he was famously assassinated. And after his assassination, his great-nephew and heir, who at that time his name was Octavian, he hunted down the assassins with his armies. Um, I think his assassins actually committed suicide during battle or amid battle, but uh, Octavian continued to go to war with some other armies and leaders, and that's a whole other famous history story, but ultimately Octavian won, and eventually Octavian accumulated enough power to replace his uncle's position, and in time, he became Rome's first emperor, Caesar Augustus. And in several ways, Augustus set the standard for how we think of Rome. He expanded Rome's empire, he ex or, or it's the lands, really. But yeah, um, it was still, at that, around his time, it was still, they were still becoming familiar with their identity as an empire. But yes, uh, he expanded uh, the regions of Rome, the lands, he expanded, uh, the territories. He expanded Rome's interconnected system of roads. He initiated a whole series of legal reforms. And after years of war, Augustus brought a level of peace to the empire. And we kind of historically refer to that as the Pax Romana or a period of Roman peace. And we'll return to that idea. But Caesar Augustus's reign effectively introduced the whole world to this emerging reality of the Roman Empire. And as we just read, Augustus, he also established an organized system for taxation, which is why this census was decreed. And it required citizens to travel to their ancestral towns to be registered. So, returning to the text, in verse 4, Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth and Galilee to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem, because he was descended from the house and family of David. And he went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged, and who was expecting a child. While, while they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. 
and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in bands of cloth, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place in the guest room. Here now, Luke's narrative switches to focus on yet another class of people. Not a lordly class, but a lowly class. A class of commoners. And this group is made up of simple people of the land. Joseph and Mary have traveled from Nazareth down to Bethlehem to be registered, and they are not the only ones. The town, the whole town, is busy with people and relatives and neighbors. And in fact, it's a very possible, or it's very possible or likely that Mary and Joseph were not refused a place to stay and forced into a stable, as we have traditionally been taught but that the upper guest room in the family house was already being used by older relatives. And Mary and Joseph were given a corner room in the house where a few small animals may have been tied up, which would explain the manger. So instead of being banished to the barn, they were probably cozying up in the corner of a house already crowded with relatives. And this situation kind of rearranges the visual. Instead of Mary and Joseph being the singled out outcasts, it gathers up their entire family and relatives and neighbors into a group or class of lowly commoners. And it paints a starkly different picture than that of their Roman overlords. Lowly commoners forced by the lords of the land to travel long distances and then crowd into small spaces in all in order to render unto Caesar. So now that we've encountered these first two classes or groups, why do I think these class groups of lords and lowly matter to this story? I can think of four reasons. One, because it is often between such classes as these, that hopelessness abounds. The lords or those in power will often wield or weaponize hopelessness as a means to force the lowly to comply. A second reason is that this framework has already been referred to by Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 52 in her Magnificat. And it will be referenced again in the next story with Simeon. And the third reason I believe these class group structures matter to the story is because the story is about to introduce yet another class group. And fourthly, the introduction of that group will mark the beginning of the end of how hopelessness is wielded by the powerful. So let's not keep that group waiting. Verse 8. Now in that same region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them. 
and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace among those whom he favors. Now we have already observed a class of lords of the land and the power that they wield. We have discussed the class of lowly commoners and the hopelessness they've had to endure. But now, here, another class is introduced. One that is uniquely different than the other two. It is a class from the realm of glory. At first, it's an angel bathed in celestial light, appearing to this class of shepherd and commoners. But then he is joined by a larger host of heavenly agents whose collective chanting declares the glory belonging to God in the highest heavens and his peace being bestowed upon the earth. So the first two classes that we were we were introduced to, they are ordinary or familiar. And we know these groups of the lords and the lowly. We know which of these groups tend to hold and wield power, and which of those groups are forced to just deal with whatever comes. And we know it so well that we have just, I think, normalized this to be the way of things. But the appearance of this third group presents an anomaly, or an odd exception. It reveals that an insurgence into the way of things is taking place, and that this insurgence could potentially disrupt that way of things. So to better understand this insurgence and the potential disruption it poses, we need to look closer at the nature of what's happening, what's being proclaimed, and what sets it apart from the way of things. So what is happening in this text? An angel of the Lord appears, the glory of the Lord shines all around them, and the angel says he, will bring, he's, he brings good news of great joy. What's happening is that this is the imagery of God's messenger, or royal emissary, making an entrance, draped in God's heavenly and celestial light to make a joyful royal announcement. What does this announcement proclaim? The text says that to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. So, this royal announcement is specifically a birth announcement, as in the king's heir 
has been born. It also specifically clarifies that this is God's long-awaited Davidic Messiah, King, who is being born. But what is kind of interesting, kind of an interesting paradox here is that while one part of this message depicts the baby as quite the lordly figure, the description of the baby's strips of cloth in the manger does, on the other hand, depict the baby as quite lowly. So while a lordly baby's birth is announced, the description is of a commoner's baby. So already, Jesus is being described as a dichotomy. A figure who will both represent and contrast the lordly and lowly classes of people in this world. So the question may then become, if this baby is a dichotomy of the lordly and the lowly, what is ultimately going to set this baby apart from being just another representation of those other groups? Well, after the angel's announcement is concluded, he is joined by this heavenly host. They are praising God. They are saying glory to God in the highest heavens on earth, peace among those whom he favors. While we see this baby has both lordly and lowly aspects to it, the, the appearance of these heavenly chanters gives the impression that more is going on here than merely creating a paradox between the lordly and the lowly. Based on this choir's proclamations, it seems like this child's birth is part of an effort to transform how power operates between the lordly and the lowly. Their line, glory to God in the highest heavens, begins that transformation by turning the commoner's eyes away from the status quo of the lordly and the lowly to focus upon the one who deserves the highest glory and honor. And their line, on earth, peace among those whom he favors, it continues that transformation by turning the audience to receive the peace that can only be found in the Lord of all. But how does this connect to the baby? And how does this set him apart from the, you know, the regular way of things? Let us return to Caesar for a moment. Amongst many ancient peoples, the kings were often seen as earthly representations of their divine gods or deities. In other cases, especially when peoples were large empires, the kings or the emperors may, be, may have been seen as divine. Now, according to an inscription that was found in an ancient uh, Greco-Roman city called Myria, Caesar Augustus was at one point called Divine Augustus Caesar, referring to the Son of a God, Imperator of land and sea, the benefactor and Savior of the whole world. 
and one of the primary responsibilities of ancient rulers was to establish peace in the land, which often just meant a sense of order or a lack of destabilizing war. And this was something that Caesar Augustus had definitely established so effectively that it would be the start of what history would consider the age of Roman peace. It did establish a system of order that was unique in history. But again, remember, this Roman peace was achieved by soldiers, by swords, shields, spears. It was accomplished through military superiority, regional occupation, and threats of violence. It, it was frequently kept through buy-offs and bribes and favors. King Herod and the Sadducees are examples of that. It was also maintained by sometimes turning some citizens against their fellow countrymen. You can look at the uh, Jewish tax collectors as an example of that. And there was still corruption and exploitation widespread throughout the empire. So despite whatever sense of order or innovation we're referring to when we talk about Rome's peace, we are not talking about the presence of goodness. Harmony, wholeness, joy, healing, hope. We're talking about an atmosphere that is abundant with oppression, exhaustion, anxiety, division, hostility, and hopelessness. What sets Jesus apart from all this is that he is the true image and Son of God. He is the King who will transcend these groups and bring true salvation. He is the one who will facilitate God's peace upon the earth. He will overcome hopelessness, not with a rule that oppresses, but with a love that sacrifices and restores. He will usher in peace, not with conditions that threaten, but with a hope that relieves and empowers. The birth of a baby seems like a very small thing on the royal stage, but the heavenly hosts appear in great glory to show how this is the start of God's royal revolution. This insurgency of true hope is the start of a kind of peace for the world that not even Caesar could, could produce. So make no mistake, the angels that appear here and are saying these things about Jesus, these things are meant as a direct defiance of the powers that rule the day. These things that are being said of Jesus are direct um, challenges to Caesar or a direct challenge to the lords of the land and their way of dealing with power. The arrival, the appearance of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus is meant to mark the beginning of a new way of doing power and a new way of achieving peace in a way that no government can produce. 
And it's going to be the behavior and the actions of this future king who would grow up to embody and enact this way. That is how we are, we in the world will come to know and practice true peace. Returning to the text, in verse 15, it says that when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the manger. When they saw this, they made known what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it, were amazed at what the shepherds told them. Jesus is barely an hour or so old, and already the good news is spreading. It's the good news that a Heavenly Father is overjoyed to spread and share to His people who need good news that His Son has been given, that their Savior has come into the world to bring hope into a hopeless world. And in verse 19, it says that Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. Now, I've already referenced it earlier, but if you look back at Mary's Magnificat in chapter 1, verse 52, Mary spoke, The Lord has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. Mary has already seen in the Spirit that through her child, God will emerge and disrupt how power works in this world. That through her child, hopelessness will be overcome by true hope. And now, Mary holds that hope in her arms. And she ponders the salvation that he will grow up to bring. So what do we do with Jesus' birth story? How do we apply it? It's kind of a... I know that after every message or, you know, every message that we t we always talk about or hear, we always want to try and apply some things. And sometimes it's a little bit more complicated when it's just a... Uh, uh, kind of a, a special event like this. But in a sense, all Scripture presents to us an event that we can learn to embody in the way that we live our life. So, first I think that we... The first thing I think that we can do with it is... We, we do with it what we do with all good Christmas gifts. We receive it. And there's a big difference between observing this story and receiving its hope. Practicing contemplative prayer and gratitude are among the best 
ways we can do that. If we just sit and read the story, maybe read it through a few times, and then just sit there with it, and just be thankful for this gift God has given, for what God is doing through Jesus, and being thankful and grateful that we have access to its hope. I believe that that process of just sitting with it and sitting in gratitude and in contemplation, I believe that this process will allow this gift to set its hope inside us and become a part of us, giving us refreshment, giving us relief, giving us release, a sense of hope giving us a sense of peace and calm and new beginning. It's not ours until we allow ourselves to receive what God has given. It's not enough to just read it, observe it, and, you know, just kind of acknowledge it. We actually have to interact with the story and then really, in a sense, we have to interact with what the Spirit of God is offering us in this story. So if we allow ourselves to receive what God is offering, it will begin to become a part of who we are. And in that sense, it kind of brings us to a second idea of something that we can do with Jesus' birth story, and that is to let Jesus' birth story and all that it means penetrate and transform our worldview. A lot of this discussion so far that you've heard today is focused on how the world is often a place where the lordly create an atmosphere of apprehension, they enable oppression, They benefit from exploitation and maintain this status quo, if you will, by wielding hopelessness. And the lowly just cope with it. Sometimes I wonder how often this dynamic perseveres in the world simply because we have normalized it as, well, that's just the way things are. It is what it is. That's why the birth of Jesus is indicative of such a big change. The birth of Jesus signals God's invasion of this status quo. And the birth of Jesus signals a disruption to how that status quo is supposed to operate. From the way that power is wielded all the way up in government down to our relationships with whomever, people at work, marital relationships, all the way down to our individual worldviews. Through Jesus, God is introducing a unique way of doing power. A way of love and service. 
a way of sacrifice and compassion, a way of mercy and strong forgiveness, the way of encouragement and grace. And once we comprehend that, we have a decision to make. Will we continue to support the narratives of the lordly, or will we conform our worldviews to what God is ushering in through King Jesus? Or put another way, will our lives become an embodiment of the world's way of power, or will we become living embodiments of the King whose behavior shows us the way of peace? So as we wrap up today's episode, and you guys are probably, I, I'm sure, um, paying attention to a whole lot of uh, preparations and planning and just everything that's going on with, you know, the regular, you know, this regular season of Christmas. I know that there is a lot competing for our attention right now, but I just want to encourage you to as as you try to hit the pause button in a way and spend some time in prayer or in the word spending some time trying to focus on the christmas story again i hope that you find in this story that we've talked about here today i hope that you find or i hope that you experience in some way this story the reality of this story, pushing you to ask yourself some questions about how are you going to start seeing the world from now on? Because the world as we experience it day in and day out, the world is discipling us constantly in the way that it wants us to to see it and to interact with it every time we turn on the news every time we get onto the the internet every time we encounter commercials every time we just kind of like um listen to what listen to the noise that's coming at us that is a form of discipleship that is the world discipling us. And a lot of times what they are discipling us or what they are trying to shape us into is something that really resembles the way of Caesar. It is something that really resembles something that God sent Jesus to change. The arrival of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, marks a whole new way of living, a whole new way of doing power. And if we want to be followers of Jesus, we really need to start paying attention to how he is an alter and he is the alternative to what Caesar offers. 
how his way of power is completely different from how the world wages or wields power. So I encourage you at this season, at this uh, during this time of Advent, as you as you celebrate Jesus's coming, I encourage you to really chew on what that coming means for what the world is. I want to thank you very much for listening in here today. I thank you for your time, and I want to wish you and your family and friends and every, all your loved ones a very Merry Christmas. I want to thank you for listening in to this episode of the Wayward Podcast, and I hope that what you have heard here today helps you to live life upon the way of God's Word. So, like the angels sang to the shepherds in the field, Glory to God in the highest heavens and on earth peace to those who receive his love, his love.